Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. So we are in Genesis 17 this morning. When Abram was 99, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell, Abram fell face down, and God spoke with him. And God said, as for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram, but your name will be Abraham. For I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout the generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you and to you and your future offspring I will give the land where you are residing all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession and I will be their God well I typed mine out because I wanted to make sure I could read it and I'm going to read Genesis 17:15 through 18 this morning. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And he said to himself, shall, I be born, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. God is faithful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, guys. Good morning. Thanks for being here with us uh, this morning. I, um, so this passage, picking up in the story of Abraham um, last week, you took a little a little break, um, but, but picking up the story, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Uh, there's so much stuff in this passage. The thing that probably has stuck out to me the most about it um, is I was preparing for the series months ago and um, kind of plotting out 
what to preach about and what to not preach about and what messages to give, one of the things I noted that was between chapter 16 and chapter 17, there is a gap of 13 years. And man, that stuck out to me. 13 years is a long time. So the story starts in Genesis chapter 12. God comes to Abraham, calls him. Abram's 75 years old. Then Abram, there's a famine. They go to Egypt. Um, they come back from Egypt. That doesn't go great. Uh, Lot gets in trouble with the kings from the east. Abram chases him down. Um, J- J- John preached a couple weeks ago about the, um, where Sarah says, hey, I'm not having a kid. You know, Take Hagar and have a child with her, and that'll be the child. And that doesn't go well. And Abram, it says, is 86 years old when that happens. And here he's 99 years old. So we have no record of communication between chapter 16 and 17. It's like 13 years of nothing. And it doesn't mean that there wasn't any communication, but based on how they interact in these chapters, I think it's really reasonable to assume that there wasn't significant interaction during those 13 years. And I get the sense that um, it hasn't been an easy 13 years. Like, the last scene we have is you know, with Hagar, and then she has Ishmael, and then Sarah gets mad about it, and she's like, hey, get her out of here. And so Abram sends her away, but then God sends her back. And so they're living, like blended families can be difficult, right? And this is the ultimate blended family, maybe. And as soon as, you'll, in a, the next couple chapters, as soon as Isaac is born, Sarah says, Ishmael's laughing at my kid, send her away again. Like that tension never left. Um, and 13 years is a long time to not hear from God, especially when the last thing that happened is what happened with Hagar. So for Abram, a lot can run through your mind. Like, is this 13 years punishment for me screwing the last thing up? You know what I mean? Um, is the deal off? Like, is God ever going to come back? What is taking so long for God to come back? How are the pieces of this puzzle going to fit together? And I don't, if you can get in your head about stuff or I can get in my head about stuff, and Abraham, we saw it a few scenes earlier, can get in his head about stuff, then that, I think that happens. And so the Lord appears to him and repeats the promise after 13 years of a covenant and a land and a people. And if, honestly, like somewhere in Abraham, I think I'd forgive him if he's like, you know, okay, great. Hey, where have you been? <laughs> like 13 years? What, what have you been doing? Did you forget about me? And I've heard this stuff before. Like, so it... It's, there's just some reality to this scene. Now, Abram responds like this. It says, Abram fell on his face. Good move. If you ever see God and you're not sure what to do, do this. Just fall on your face. It's a good option. Um, and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you. So there's a little bit of like, okay, we're still going. Like the plan is, this is still the plan. My covenant is still with you. And my, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And so this is new information. So if you remember in chapter 12, he comes and says, I'll make you a great nation. Here he says, I'll make you a multitude of nations. And Abraham means father of a multitude. So that's why he changes his name from Abram to Abraham, because he's added something. Like, and he does that to us. He'll give us a glimpse of here's where things are going. And then he'll kind of fill in the blanks as we go along. And so he's filling in some blanks for Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, not a nation, but nations. Kings will come from you. 
I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So exceedingly fruitful nations, kings, everlasting. He's adding information and then says, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay, so... So um, this, I'm going through, like, George and Pat get extra credit for reading a long passage, but it's really not everything. I'm going through 17 and half of 18, and I'm skipping half of 17. I'm skipping parts of it. But the, the way this is structured is covenant language. And so God has just said, okay, covenant, here's what I'll do. I'll do all this stuff for you. And then he's going to say, Abram, here's what you need to do. And then he's going to say, and here's what Sarah needs to do. I'm going to skip, I'm going to gloss over the, here's what you need to do, Abraham. It just, it's about um, the sign of the covenant, and the sign of the covenant is circumcision, and I've decided not to talk about circumcision. You're welcome. Uh, Not that it's not important, or I'm trying to avoid it. Um, I just didn't think it was what important to talk about in this series. Um, There are signs for covenants throughout the Bible, and this is the sign um, for the, for the Jewish people in the Old Testament, and, um, and part of the reason is I couldn't find a lot of consensus about what the sign means, uh, about who the sign is for. Some of the signs are for God, and some of the signs are for the people. Um, and I couldn't find a lot of consensus on to what extent baptism replaces circumcision as the sign of the new covenant in the New Testament. So baptism is the sign of the covenant. And so when it, um, if you, some of you got baptized as infants, now, if you're Catholic, I think there's a different reason for that. If you grew up Presbyterian and they baptized you, this is why they baptized you as an infant, because they circumcised babies on the eighth day, and they, there's not a faith statement in that. It's just that they're a part of the family of the covenant. But I don't know. If you want to talk about that later and geek out, I'm more than willing to, um, but I just, I'm not going to cover it in this series. And let me say this. If you have believed in who Jesus is and the work that he's done on your behalf, you should get baptized, because that's the sign of the covenant, if you've accepted what he's done for you. And it's a beautiful picture of the covenant, and we're going to do that. Maybe on Easter we'll do baptisms, and so if you need to be baptized, please let me know. Okay, now, Genesis 17, 15, and 16, and God said to Abram, as for Sarah, so it's, here's, I'll do this, as for you, Abraham, you do this, sign of the covenant, as for Sarah, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, so he changes her name to People are not clear on the difference between those two names as much as they are Abram and Abraham. I will bless her, and moreover, I'll give her a, you a son. I'll give you a son by her. And that, for Abram, is like a critical piece of information because from the beginning, but there's been a question. He comes to him in 12 and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And, um, and then later, it, he, God says to him, there will be a son from your loins, which is, I think, where they get to, well, it's from Abram's loins, but not necessarily Sarah's, so it could be Hagar. And here he says, no, 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 I'm going to give you a son by Sarah. Um, and so that's, that's a big thing. Uh, and you can, I, I sent out this podcast a few weeks ago, the Bema podcast. Did anybody listen to that? Someone geeked out on it and and email me because it's really good. But there's one about the genealogies where he mentions in Genesis chapter 11, Miska and Iska. And this guy makes a case that Iska is actually Sarai and that Abram married her because she was barren and without protection in that world. It was bad to be a single woman in that world. And so he married her. It just speaks to the character of Abram. But he knew from the beginning 
that it was very unlikely that she was going to have a child. And now it's been 24 years. And in that time, they've been like, well, maybe Eliezer of Damascus is the heir because Sarah's not having a baby. Or maybe Lot, he had to be an option, but he has proven to be an unreliable character. Um, And he's going to say in a minute, well, use Ishmael. But God's like, no, 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 no. It's going to be Sarah that has a baby. Um, Okay. If you're Abram, and you're 24 years into this journey with the Lord, and you're not getting any younger, and neither is your wife, and it's been 13 years since you've heard from God, and with every passing year, the whole thing seems less and less likely, uh, how do you respond? How do you feel in this moment when God shows back up? Have you had to wait on God for something? If you're following Jesus, you should have had to wait on God for something. If you, you haven't, you're not following closely enough. Uh, we can talk about that later. But, like, it, but the level of thing you can be waiting on is different. So I was thinking about this. You know how they talk about priorities and the jar? And like they talk about the big things in your life maybe being like golf balls and then the not as big things being pebbles and then the not important things being sand. You know what I'm talking about? And so they say if you put the sand in first... And then the pebbles, and then you try and fit the golf balls in, it doesn't work. But if you put the golf balls in first, and then you put the pebbles and shake it around, and then put the sand, you can fit it all in. You know what I'm saying? So, like, there's different levels of things. Um, So when you wait on God, sometimes you're waiting on sand, just not really big deal things. Sometimes you're waiting on pebbles, and sometimes you're waiting on golf balls. How many people feel like they've had to wait on God for a golf ball? Yeah. Um. If you're Abram, and you've been waiting for this golf ball, and God says, all right, it's go time, I think there's a range of how you could feel. You know, one would be relief. Like, finally, I I thought it would never happen. Like, it's been so long, 13 years, but just a relief of, like, tension, leaving, of, like, yes, here we go. That's an option. Um, I think satisfaction would be an option of like, I knew it was going to happen. I just didn't know when. The way it was worth it, I knew it. I knew he was coming back because your hope had stayed high, you know. It could be uh, validation. I mean, he could be to Sarah. Like, I told you he was coming back. You didn't think he was coming back, but I didn't I tell you he was going to come back? I told you you could trust him. You should have listened to me. I don't want to say I told you so, but I told you so. You know, that could be it. It could be like a guarded optimism. Like, I want to believe, oh man, but I'm kind of scared to believe. Uh, Or it could be, you could be kind of dismissive, like on to the next thing. Like, okay, good, finally. But you really just blow it off, and then you worry about the next next golf ball. You know, like you you don't relish in this, but you just move on to the next one. A lot of options. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed. So the first time he fell on his face, here's his response. He falls on his face before God and laughs. And that's not like a joyous laughter. It's a you've got to be kidding me laughter. And I love this passage because it's so personal. Um, And I said this a few weeks ago. There was a pause in a passage where Abraham was really polite in the first response to God. And then he was a little bit more salty in the second response. And it's that I feel like God was intentionally poking the bear with Abraham to find out what's really in there. And I feel like he's doing it again here. 
And so Abraham falls on his face, and it's formal, and it's the way you should respond to God. But then God brings this up, and he falls on his face, and he laughs. Because it's just like there's so much going on inside of him. And God doesn't want just a formal relationship with you. He wants a personal relationship with you. And Abram says to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarai, who's 90, bear a child? Is this, could this really happen? Okay, let me flip to another passage. We did Romans uh, last year, and we hit this passage when we were in Romans. This is Romans 4, uh, verse 19. Abram did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Back in Genesis, he said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? Anybody else have trouble squaring those? T- <laughs> like that's, that, I don't know what wavering is, but that sounds like wavering to me. And I'll come back to this. Um, and, and maybe it gets chalked up to like growth and obedience in this moment. Uh, but man, it's just, it's so relatable to me. Is it worth getting my hopes up again? Is it worth getting my hopes up again? 13 years, 24 years is a long time. There's a couple observations in this. Abram, is, he has stayed faithful to God. He has not deconstructed his faith in God because God has been kind of missing in action for him. He hasn't walked away from the whole thing. He hasn't gone from Canaan. He hasn't gone back to Haran or to Ur or to Egypt. He's stayed in the land, and he's made a life for himself. Uh, When God showed up, he fell on his face before the Lord. He is faithful. He is still in the game, right? But I also think Abram might just be going through the motions with God. Like he's there, but as he's just gotten in this rut, And the idea of going further is hard. And my guess is that a lot of us can relate to that. And so God shows up and says, okay, let's pick up the ball and go. And it's like, it's like, let's go for the touchdown when he's been stuck at the 20-yard line. And he doesn't, he's not sure he can get enough energy to go the last 20 yards uh, to get there. And so, I mean, first question I'll ask is, are you going through the motions with God? Have you ever felt stuck in your relationship with God? Have you ever felt stuck in your relationship with God? Um, so there's a, a, one author, um, it's this book. It's, we went through this a few years ago. A bunch of people went, it's my favorite book on prayer. And this guy describes, um, he, descri- he calls it the desert. And it's the, the gap between hope and reality in our lives. And like that's what we're seeing. That there's, for Abram, hope, but then there's reality in 13 or 24 years of desert. And so this author says that. Um, this is between where we are and where God says we're going. And the author says, every part of our being wants to close the gap between hope and reality. We will do anything not to live in the desert. Amen? Oh, what's your desert? 
How many of you know what your desert is? Like there's just something that comes straight to mind as we start talking about this. Uh, what have you had to wait for? Um, what have you been talking to God about for what seems like forever? And it just doesn't seem like anything's happening. That could be, um, for some of you, you're single and you don't want to be single. And so you've been talking to God about a spouse. And there's a prol proliferation of stories about dating apps. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with dating apps. I just think the whole thing has gotten weird and toxic. And some of you have told me as much. <laughs> like, that's just a really hard place to exist. But, like, we're increasingly disconnected, like online connected, but not really connected. And so it's just hard, and you're like, how is this ever going to happen? It could be a child. You know, God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You're like, yeah, let's do that. But, like, that's not happening. That is a desert. Um, it could be an adoption. That, like, you want to do this good thing, but why is the good thing so hard to do? Why is this taking so long, Lord? Uh, it could be related to your work, um, that you're in a job, that you're not sure where it's going, or you're not sure what difference it makes, or you're not sure that this is the thing that you're made to do, uh, but that's where God's got you, and you don't know for how long. It could be a boss or a coworker that God's got you under or alongside with that is a real challenge, and you're not sure what the point is. Um, it could be a ministry that God's called you to that isn't going the way that you envisioned that ministry going, and you're not sure why God called you there if God wasn't going to do the thing that you thought he was going to do. If you're a young person, it could be middle school. Middle school, if you could, I would go back to a lot of different times in my life. Uh, middle, you couldn't pay me money to go back to middle school. How many people are with me that middle school was like the ultimate desert? Yes. If you were in middle school and it's really hard, it'll get better. I, I promise you. Um, high school could be like that. Sorry, this is, I don't know what's going on with this. Um, uh, you know, it could be just that, se some season in your life. It could be a health-related thing. I mean, Matt Noble had to wait years for a heart transplant. Oh, man, it could be a diagnosis of getting MS. That can be its own desert. Um, it could be your child has uh, some type of condition that you're not sure, like, where this is going. It could be stuff. It could be a relationship that you're waiting for a breakthrough in. It could be the salvation of someone close to you who is running from the Lord. Like, there's so many options with it. Um, a lot of us are in a desert age, and so if you have young children, that is its own desert. Like, there's just a routine with that where God is doing things in your kids' lives through the routine, then your faithfulness in that um, but one person said recently, life during the week feels like laundry and lunches and dishes. That's it. And in, uh, it's a bummer when the weekend ends up feeling like that too. Um, when our kids are getting a little bit older, and so we're not in that routine anymore, but I swear I made thousands of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I one morning was making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and tried to calculate how many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches I must have made. I was pretty good at it, right? There you go. Uh, our kids all played sports. There were like years upon years where I just felt like I got home from work and was an Uber driver 
for my kids, and that's it. And that's a desert, but God's at work in that desert. I have a friend um, from our old church who he used to send out this email. He had an email list, and he would just send out some things he'd, he would call together or he thought about or whatever. And I don't remember hardly any of them, but one of them I remember where he said, uh, he's like, teenagers, your parents were much cooler before they had you. Like, they had a life, they had time, they had ideas, they had energy, they had money, they weren't exhausted all the time and stressed out about how to pay for you. So get off their back. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's it. So everybody's got some element of a desert, whether it's a golf ball or pebbles or sand. And I imagine most of us have golf balls. And you haven't walked away from God during the desert times because like Abraham, he's gotten you through other deserts and he's real and you know it and you're not giving up. But you get a little religious. You get a little routine with him. You know, you come to church on most Sundays, but you're a little routine about it. And you sit in the exact same place every Sunday morning, people. Come on. One Sunday, I'm just going to get up here, I'm going to turn around, I'm going to say, you have a minute, and when I turn back around, I want you sitting in a different section than you're sitting in right now. Now, I have talked to people about this recently, and we just, we're creatures of habit, so we're going to sit in the same place. I am going to make you sit someplace different soon, but like there's, but it's just, we don't have other environments where we have the opportunity to do this. We have habits that we establish, but it just gets routine, you know? Uh, you may go to a small group or a men's or women's study, but it can be routine. You're, you're just going through the motions. You read your Bible and you pray now and again, but maybe you lost a little bit of that love and feeling, and, and, and you might not believe that God is going to do the big things anymore. You might not believe that God is going to do the big things anymore. And God still does really big things. 24 years and no baby. It's hard to hope sometimes when you've been waiting, when you've suffered some crushing disappointments, when you've screwed things up. And in this scene, Abram isn't alone in it. So I'm skipping forward to chapter 18. The Lord appeared to Abram by the oaks of Mamre as he sat by the door of his tent in the heat of the day, lifted his eyes and looked. There are three men standing in front of him. And uh, I'll deal with these three men next week. Um, but you skip down to verse 9. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So delicate and polite <laughs> in their language. And I love this. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And that means what you think it means. And, um, <laughs> and so Abram, God says, You're going to have a son by Sarah. And Abraham laughs. And Sarah hears the same thing. And she has the same response. They feel like they're in the same place. And the Lord says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Uh, they're both in, in the desert. They're both lamenting the gap between hope and reality. This author, um, he, uh, his desert that he talks about, and it's throughout the book, is one, I think it's his oldest daughter, when, when um, 
when she was born, they gave his wife during the delivery uh, Pitocin, but then they left her alone. The doctor got caught up in something else, and he said, my wife was in agony. I knew something was wrong. The doctor came back in. They delivered his daughter, Kim, and she was blue, and some number was way off, or Akbar score. I don't, even, I don't know what any of this stuff is, but, and, uh, and she ended up with a form of autism, and they had like a 20-year desert of just like what happened. They thought about suing the doctor, but the doctor threatened to countersue them, and they just didn't have any money, and they didn't know what to do, and so that's his desert. And it's really personal to him. And he says, these, these are the things we tend to do we get in the desert. The first one is denial. So the reality line is lower, but we pretend that it's not. We pretend that things aren't as bad as, um, as they are. We fall on our face, but we don't want to laugh, at least publicly, you know? <laughs> and I think we have a tendency to do this in church because we have a hard time with lament, and, and we don't and we're uncomfortable like joining people in their desert or even being in our own desert. And so we jump to like Romans 8, 28. Um, God, God works for the good of all those who are called according to his purpose. Like we jump to that so fast and tell people it's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. And that's not really a helpful thing. We've tried really hard over the years to not do that as, as a church culture. We had a series for years that I'm going to redo in August called Where's God When Life Happens, where it was just like looking at situations that a lot of them were deserts in people's lives, and you can't tie a bow on all of them. You know, you can't understand all of it, but, you can, but God is present in it. Um, but just to say, like, we don't, have to, we don't have to tie a bow on everything and have all the answers. And so denial is an option. Determination is an option. You know, I'm going to get myself out of this. I'm not staying in this desert. I will get out of here no matter what. And I think we are prone to determination. Despair is an option. Man, I'm never getting out of this desert. Like, and so you just give up hope. Um, and with that, I think, is cynicism. Like, there's some defense mechanism against disappointment. And so you just don't want to get your hopes up so much. And you have a hard time celebrating the things of God. Abram expresses this. Jumping back to chapter 17, Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And that is just saying, I cannot get my hopes up again. <laughs> I do not have the energy to hope for a kid anymore. Just use Ishmael so we don't have to get on this roller coaster again. Have you been there? Uh, my mom is is uh, been waiting for a knee surgery for a couple years. He's got a knee that's bone on bone. We found a doctor that would do it last September. Went for all the pre-op stuff. It was it's scheduled for Monday morning. Sunday afternoon, the surgeon, to his credit, calls my mom himself and says, hey, the anesthesiologist looked at your stuff and just won't do it. It's too risky. He's scared of what's going to happen if we put you under anesthesia. And just like a crushing thing, you know. And this past week, we went to another doctor who said, um, okay, I'll do it. And, you know, do things a little bit differently. But it's, like, hard to get your hope up. Like, it's, you're almost in I'll believe it when I see it mode. It's hard to get your hope up. And I think that's where these guys are. And God responds to Abraham when he says, Ishmael, God says, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you'll call his name Isaac. And, again, this is like adding a level of specificity to it that is saying, no, you keep your hopes up. Because here's his name, Isaac. Uh, when, 
when you start dating someone and it's going well, what do you do? You name the kids, right? You start thinking this is going to happen. Well, that's what he does here. And I'll establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. You go back to Sarah. Um, so back now we're down in chapter 18. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And man, that is the question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you, and Sarah shall have a son. There's a verse in, um, in Acts uh, 26, and Paul is giving his defense before Felix or Festus. I can't remember which one. And he just almost gets exasperated because these people are having such a hard time believing what they all know to be true because they're in Jerusalem where it happened. And he says, why is the thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He's God. He created the universe. Of course he can raise the dead. Like, what are we doing? You go back to Romans. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he's promised. And maybe, maybe what this means, no unbelief made him waver. Maybe it doesn't mean that the unbelief wasn't there. Like, I could go to the guy that brings his kid to Jesus, and Jesus says, like, heal my son. And Jesus says, if you can believe, I'll hear your son. And the guy says, I do believe, help my unbelief. Maybe like that. The unbelief didn't make him waver. Like, he kept going. It didn't stop him. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. When Kelly was talking earlier, like that's what came to my mind, that in the midst of those places, the response is to keep going and give glory to God, and that's where we grow strong. And fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, I can, this is where I am much of the time. I'm fully convinced that God is able. I'm not fully convinced that God is going to. We say a few things about the desert. If you were following Jesus, you will spend time in the desert. If you were following Jesus, you will spend time in the desert. It is the nature of a faith relationship with God. You will spend time in that gap between hope and reality. Thankfully, for most of us, all of life won't be one giant desert, right? We might have a golf ball and some pebbles that are deserts for us, but the other ones, like, make sense. And for most people, that's what it is. And sometimes they switch, you know? But God's always got you in some place where he's developing your faith and calling you to trust him and understand him better. The Garden of Eden, in a way, was a desert. Don't eat from the fruit of that tree. Trust me. Trust me that I'm going to show up and give you what you need that I know it's best for you. Um, in John 11, when Jesus is talking to Martha after Lazarus has died and before the Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That he is the one that holds that. And it's not that there's not evidence in which to believe. There's plenty of evidence. But at the end of the day, we walk by faith, and that means there's some element of the desert. To the Corinthians, Paul writes, For in this tent... We groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by what is life. So we're always of good courage. We know that while we, were at home, we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. 
there will be deserts. Don't deny them. Don't determine to get yourself out of them. Don't try not to despair in them or get cynical in them. But believe God still does big things. God does some of his best work in the desert. Uh, Moses was literally in a desert for 40 years before God called him. Like that is a desert, right? He grows up in the household of Pharaoh in Egypt, knowing he's a Hebrew because he carries the sign of the, circum- of the covenant. <laughs> and, uh, and then he identifies with his people. He rescues one of them, kills an, uh, an Egyptian slave master. Everybody finds out about it, so he flees. And he's in the desert for 40 years, and he thinks it is over. But if for 40 years, God is working on him. And then God shows up and says, okay, Aaron, let's, or Moses, let's go. And Moses is like, you got the wrong guy. He has no idea what God's done in him. He doesn't feel like after 40 years in the desert, now I'm ready. He doesn't know what God does, but God does his best work in the desert. And so he sends him, and he's ready, but he has no idea that he's ready. David and Saul, man, David, God says, you're going to be the king. He anoints him. He gets the oil over his head. He knows it's going to happen. Everybody knows that Saul doesn't know what he's doing as a king, shouldn't be king. And David has a chance to kill him a few times because Saul's trying to kill him. He has every justification, but God sends him out into the desert and just keeps him there. And David waits, knowing the day will come, but waiting on the timing of the Lord. One of my favorite things that I've read in the past few months that I've read a hundred times but just haven't seen before is in Genesis later. So there's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons, and Joseph is the 11th son. And um, so the 10 sons try and kill Joseph, sell him into slavery down to Egypt. He goes to Egypt. He's in his own desert, and then he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And uh, the famine hits. And so the, the, 10, the 10 sons go down um, to get some food because they hear there's food in Egypt. And they're before Joseph, but they don't know it. And then Joseph's like, isn't there another son? And they're like, how do you know that? And so he sends them back up and keeps Simeon, and then they come back down. And they've got Benjamin, the last one. And then Joseph's like, hey, I'm Joseph. And they're like, oh, this is bad, you know? <laughs> and uh, but he's like, no, it's cool because I know what God was doing for me in the desert. So they go back up to Jacob because the famine is still, like, big. And, um, and so I would love to be a fly in the wall when they tell Jacob, hey, you remember how we told you that Joseph got eaten by that animal when we brought that robe with the blood on it? That's not quite how that went down. Uh, like, I'd love to be there for that conversation. And then they're like, but we got to go down to Egypt and ride the famine out because Joseph's got all the food in the world. And Jacob says, I, I can't leave. Like, God promised this land to my, my grandfather Abram and my father Isaac, and now it's my land. Like, I'm the one. And God says to him, He comes to him in a vision and says, go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. And like that puzzle piece fitting together, they could not have seen that coming. You go down there for a 400-year desert, and I will make you a great nation, and then I will bring you back. God does some of his best work in the desert. Um, This author says this, God takes everyone he loves through a desert. It's his cure for our wandering hearts, restlessly searching for a new Eden. Here's how it works. The first thing that happens is we slowly give up the fight. Our wills are broken by the reality of our circumstances. The thing that brought us life gradually die. Our idols die for lack of food. 
The still, dry air of the desert brings the sense of helplessness that's so crucial to the spirit of prayer. You come face to face with your inability to live, to have joy, to do anything of lasting worth. Life is crushing, crushing you. Suffering burns away the false selves created by cynicism or pride or lust. You stop caring about what people think of you. The desert is God's best hope for the creation of an authentic, authentic self. Desert life sanctifies you. You have no idea that you are changing. You simply notice after you've been in the desert a while that you are different. Things that used to be important no longer matter. For instance, for them, before Kim was born, we used to have one of our kids comb the fringes of the living room rug so it was perfect. That's a, that's a lot. Now we're lucky to find a comb for our own hair. After a while, you notice your real thirst. While in the desert, David writes, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The desert becomes a window to the heart of God. He finally gets your attention because he's the only game in town. You cry out to God so long and so often that a channel begins to open up between you and God. When driving, you turn off the radio just to be with God. At night, you drift in and out of prayer when you're sleeping. Without realizing it, you've learned to pray continuously. The clear, fresh water of God's presence that you discover in the desert becomes a well inside your own heart. The best gift of the desert is God's presence. We see this in Psalm 23. In the beginning of the psalm, the shepherd is in front of me. He leads me beside still waters. At the end, he is behind me. Goodness and love will pursue me. But in the middle, as I go through the valley of the shadow of death, he is next to me. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The protective love of the shepherd gives me the courage to face the interior journey. God knows the desert is a hard place to be. This is one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. Back to Sarah. Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed I bear a child that I am now old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. And that's the end of the scene. They'd move on to the next scene. It's so awkward. <laughs> uh, he doesn't make her apologize. I don't think he's mad at her. Maybe mildly annoyed. He doesn't give her the business about it. And God names their kid in Hebrew Yitzhak, which is Isaac, which in Hebrew means laughter. And I don't think that's like, a, I told you so. And don't you forget it, I think it is just a gentle reminder of how hard it is to trust God, but that you can trust God. Um, later, after he's born, Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. So she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, and yet I have borne him a son in his old age? He doesn't want them to forget the desert. But it's like an Ebenezer of his faithfulness. And the, the last point I'll make in this is that God loves you so much that he went through the desert himself. Jesus knows what the desert is like. 
Um, Jesus is like 30-ish when he starts his ministry. That's a long time. That's a long wait, especially in those days, you know. And when he was 12, they went to the temple for Passover, and they left without him, and they came back after a few days, and he's in the temple talking to the rabbis, and they're like, who is this kid? And they knew there was something special about him. I mean, they knew there was something special about him because he was born of a virgin, and those kings came from the east, you know. But they knew the whole time in 30 years. And then at the beginning of his ministry, he goes into the desert. Uh, He goes into the wilderness, and he faces the temptations of the desert. And faces Satan down in the desert. Um, At the end, before going to the cross, he ends up in the Garden of Gethsemane, its own form of a desert. Father, take this cup from me, but not your will, not my will, but yours be done. And on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ultimate desert would be the permanent absence of God altogether. Jesus faces that desert because we can't. And now we don't have to. He meets you in the desert. He knows the desert. He's working in the desert. And the promise of the resurrection is that you will not be in the desert forever. Father, thanks for how personal your word is and how personal this story is. And you could have left this formal. Abram could have fallen on his face before you and you could have skipped right over the internal dialogue. And not given us a window into what was going on in his heart and not giving us a window into what was going on in Sarah's heart and not giving us the awkward conversation at the end of that scene, Lord. But you make it personal because you're personal and we're personal and you know everything about us, Lord. And I thank you for the tenderness of naming their child laughter. That you know, you meet us there, you bring us through. You love us in the midst of it, God. So whatever deserts we're going through, Lord, may we know that you are still sovereign over them, that you're with us in them, that you have purpose for them, and they will not last forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.